If you have a Bible, you can open to Psalm 119. We're going to begin in verse 121 this morning. There's an outline in the bulletin. You can follow along with the message. Uh, one last quick reminder that we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together at the end of the sermon. We will not be coming by with the elements, but we've made those available for you uh, over on the back walls each side of the sanctuary. So we're going to start this morning by reading our passage, Psalm 119, beginning in verse 121, going down to verse 128. The Word of God says this, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Father, this morning, like the psalmist, our eyes long to see the truth about salvation in your son, Jesus. So our prayer this morning is simply that you would help us to understand this stanza and help us to see Jesus as the fulfillment of this stanza. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're 16 weeks in, working through this poem. Psalm 119 is an acrostic poem. It's built on the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. This is week 16, stanza 16. That means letter 16, the letter ayin is the letter devoted to this particular stanza. So if you were to read this in Hebrew, moving right to left, you would see over at the right a whole bunch of ayans, the first letter of the first word of each line of poetry in this particular stanza. If you are not a native uh, Hebrew speaker, I'm thinking that some of you may not be, and you're a native English speaker, you may be wondering, what's the difference between an aleph and an ayin? They both sound like A, and for you, there is no difference. There's just two letter A's basically in the Hebrew alphabet, and if you're a native Hebrew speaker, maybe you can distinguish or recognize some difference, but for our purposes, this is an A-sounding letter. Uh, all total, 176 verses in Psalm 119, almost all of them make reference directly to the Word of God. In our particular stanza, the Ion stanza, there is a question at least about a couple of verses, certainly about one verse in particular that may not have a reference directly to the Word of God. And so if your Bible's open, you can look at verse 121. As verse 121 is translated in most English translations, doesn't sound like there is a noun there that would refer directly to the Scriptures. However, in verse 121, I'm reading out of the ESV, the word just, which in this English translation is an adjective, is actually a noun in the original Hebrew. It's the Hebrew noun mishpat, and it refers many times, that particular word, 
to the written Word of God in Psalm 119. If you were to search for that word, you would find it over and over and over again. The psalmist uses that word. So verse 121 definitely has a reference to the Scriptures. Verse 122 does not. There's a word that we're going to talk about this morning. It's the word pledge. And in Hebrew, it's the word array. And some people would say that's a a promise of God's word to his people, but that's really not what the psalmist is speaking about there. He's really talking about an economic concept of God putting down a deposit uh, or God putting down a, a guarantee on his relationship with the psalmist. And we'll circle back to that word later in the sermon. For what it's worth, there's a group of Hebrew scholars in the year 700 A.D., So you understand, this is in church history. This is not before Jesus, but well into the medieval period, 700 A.D., a group of Hebrew scholars named the Masoretes. And they took the Old Testament written in Hebrew, and they added to it vowel points and breathing marks, which were not in the original, so that non-Hebrew speakers would better understand what the Hebrew was saying and how to read it and how to understand it. And according to the Masoretes, they're not infallible. But according to that group of Hebrew scholars, verse 122 is the only verse in Psalm 119 that doesn't make direct reference to the Word of God. Now, I've showed you a few already that I do not think have a reference to the Word of God. But really, when it comes to verse 122, there's no question that there's no reference to the Word of God here. Let me give you the big idea as we think about this ion stanza. The big idea is simple. God's servants depend on God's Word. God's servants depend on God's Word. You'll find the word servant three times in this particular stanza. Repetition is important for discerning the particular emphasis of each of these stanzas. So he's identifying himself as God's servant. Throughout the stanza, there is the idea of dependency, that he needs the Lord. He's seeking the Lord. He's asking the Lord to do certain things in his life. And central to the entire uh, poem, all 176 verses, is the Word of God. So the big idea this morning, God's servants depend on God's Word. This morning, I just want to quickly acknowledge a challenge in preaching Psalm 119. And this came up as I talked with a few other pastors over the last week, and uh, we compared notes. We were at a Southern Baptist of Texas convention meeting, and I'm preaching on this. What are you preaching on? We had conversations about those sorts of things. Several guys said, oh, I started to preach Psalm 119, but it got very repetitious, and I quit about halfway through, and we didn't make it all, to the, all the way to the end. We just decided we got the general idea of it, and we, we pulled off. One of the challenges in preaching Psalm 119, one stands at a time, is that there is, admittedly, a lot of repetition between the stanzas. And so there's a challenge that when you stand up to study it, to preach it, to teach it, to listen to it, you don't just want to say the exact same thing every week. Here's the second challenge that comes with preaching any passage in the Scripture. You don't want to make stuff up. You simply want to say what the text says. And in the mind of the psalmist and in the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired this psalm, if we need all 22 stanzas, all 176 verses, then it just won't do for us to cut off halfway and say, I think you get the general idea. But we need to press through We need the repetition. 
of all 22 stanzas, all 176 verses, and we need to have eyes to see what is unique and distinctive in each particular stanza. So this morning, our big idea is that God's servants depend on God's Word. We're going to break this stanza down into three sections, very simple. First, we're going to talk about the psalmist situation. What was his circumstance? Second, we're going to talk about the psalmist's requests. What are the things that he asks God to do in his life? And then thirdly, we're going to talk about his convictions, things that he is certain and sure about regardless of how God answers the prayers and the petitions that he set forth. What's his situation? What is he asking for? What's the request? And what are his core convictions? So we'll start with his situation. The psalmist situation. First of all, note this. He had built his life on God's Word. He built his life on God's Word. Notice what he says in verse 121, the first part. He says, I have done what is just and right. And that word just, again, is the Hebrew word mishpat. What he's saying is, I have done what your word said to do. I have oriented my life in the direction of what the Scriptures say. I've built my life on your word. Let me tell you what the psalmist is not saying here. He's not saying he's perfect. He's not saying that he's never sinned. He's not saying, I have kept the Ten Commandments perfectly for all of my life. He's not saying what the rich young man said to Jesus when he said to Jesus, how can I inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know what's written in the law. Love God, love your neighbor, uh, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery. And he said to Jesus, all these I have kept since my youth. What he is simply saying is he has built his life on God's Word. And he's saying that there's a difference between his life and the people who are oppressing him. Is he saying that he's perfect? No. Is he saying that he's sinless? Absolutely not. Is he saying that he's never made a mistake or he's never broken a commandment? Surely not, and we'll see why later in this stanza. He is saying with confidence that he has built his life on God's Word and that the orientation and the direction of his life is shaped by and controlled by the Word of God. In our culture today, if you're a Christian, you have heard people say to you, how dare you judge other people for their sin? Who do you think you are? You don't think that you've ever committed sin? You don't think that you're guilty of transgression, you think you have your life completely in order and that you're a above reproach in every single way. And when we hear that, it often puts us on the defensive. Because what we're told by secular people today is a twisting of the words in the New Testament where Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And unbelievers try to use the Word of God against believers to say, you, you can't make any moral judgments about anything. How dare you say that something is wrong or wicked or immoral or sinful? You can't say that because you have sin in your own life. 
So you can't judge other people. They take Jesus' words out of Matthew 7 and they use us against us to try to silence us. Do not judge others lest you too be judged. How dare you worry about the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. And many times Christians are just bullied into being silent about what the Word of God says in clear and direct ways. You understand, that's a recipe for moral, societal, cultural anarchy and disaster. To decide as a country, as a people, we can no longer make any moral judgments about right and wrong. We're just going to leave it up to every person to do whatever they want to do. It's insanity. It's insanity, number one, because the things that we believe to be good and bad, right and wrong, righteous and wicked, are not based on our ideas, but they're based on the Word of God. And we submit ourselves to the Word of God. And we recognize our sinfulness. Secondly, you understand that there is a world of difference between the person who is falling short of God's glory, but striving after the Lord in their life, and someone who is completely running away from the Lord. You understand, just to think through this logically, that it's difficult to decide exactly the moment that night turns to dawn, turns to morning. When is that exact moment? Your iPhone tells you a little time, but if you go outside at that time, you say, I don't know, was it exactly then? It's just kind of a, it's hard to distinguish, right? It's not hard to distinguish between noon and midnight. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. He's not trying to get into fine gradations of how good he is or claiming that he's sinless. He's simply saying that he's built his life on God's Word, unlike the oppressors who are afflicting him. And this is an idea we've seen throughout Psalm 119. This is the second part of his circumstance. He was experiencing oppression. He was experiencing oppression. Look what he says in verse 121. He says, I've done what is just and right do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. Twice he talks about oppression or his oppressors. And we don't know the exact circumstance that he was dealing with, what was happening in his life, what was he describing here. But can I just share with you two biblical truths about oppression and affliction and even more broadly suffering? Number one, sometimes in your life, you will face affliction in spite of your faithfulness to God. And secondly, there will be times in your life where you face affliction because of your faithfulness to God. And those are two different circumstances. And we don't know exactly which one the psalmist finds himself in in this particular moment. But certainly there will be times in your life where in spite of you being faithful and walking with the Lord, that you experience suffering or affliction or maybe even oppression or persecution. In spite of your faithfulness. Your faithfulness to God is not a magic trade-off between you and God whereby He keeps you from all suffering. That's not how life works. There will be other times in your life where your faithfulness to God is the cause or it's a, a contributing factor to the oppression that you face from an unbelieving world. Peter and Paul are helpful as you try to think through how this works in your life. I'll just share a couple of verses with you. 1 Peter 4, 12. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not a strange thing that Christians would go through fiery trials. Listen, in your life, you will face all sorts of fiery trials. And when you face them, your first thought should not be, well, this is strange. Why would this happen to me? You should say, well... The Bible actually told me to expect this. It's not a strange thing. Notice what Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Does that mean they'll put you to death? Not necessarily. Does it mean the, they'll persecute you from the time you're in kindergarten till the nursing home constantly? Not necessarily. But it does mean if you're going to walk faithfully with the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be moments in your life where you face persecution, where you face oppression. And the psalmist is experiencing that now. He's experiencing oppression. Here's the last part of his circumstance. In his heart, he feels a longing for salvation. Verse 123, he says, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. In the ESV... The translators translate this phrase that his eyes are longing for salvation. If you're reading out of almost any other English translation, they tend to be a little bit more literal. And what they say in this particular instance, many translations, is that my eyes are failing because I've been searching your word for promises of salvation, something to that effect. My eyes are failing. My eyes are strained. It's almost the idea that he is reading the word of God late into the night, and you can picture him with a small oil lamp, and he's searching, and he's looking, and he's tired, but he won't quit searching through the scriptures. And he searches, and he looks, and he reads so long that his eyes begin to ache. And he's facing this oppression, and part of his circumstance is that he's longing for salvation from the Lord, and he's searching for it diligently in the Scripture. Notice what he says in verse 123. He says, his eyes long for salvation. Not his heart, but his eyes. Because he's searching the Word of God, looking for promises of salvation. So that's his circumstance. Let's talk for a minute about his requests. What does he ask of the Lord here? Number one, he asks for God's presence. Not presence with a T like Christmas. Many of us are good at asking for those kinds of presents. God, would you give me this? Would you give me that? He's asking for God to be with him. He wants God to be with him. He says this in verse 121b, do not leave me to my oppressors. Don't leave me. God, I need you to be with me. Listen, the certainty of affliction and suffering and persecution in your life means that you need to know as a Christian, as somebody who's repented of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know that Jesus will never leave you. He will never leave you. Can I just show you a few verses? That remind us, John 14, 8, this was before Jesus died and he's preparing the disciples in the upper room. And he says, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I will not leave you alone. I'm going to come to you. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 28. 
after the cross, after the resurrection, he said, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He's not going to leave his people. Look what we read in Hebrews 13.5. God says to his people, I will never leave you or forsake you. You need to know that the Lord Jesus Christ, through the person of the Holy Spirit, will always be with you if you're a Christian. He will always be with you. Do you know what else you need to do? You need to pray that God would be with you. And in our pragmatic American minds, those two things don't compute. Because we say, if He's already promised to do it, why would I ask Him to do it? Why wouldn't I just remind myself that he's going to do it? The psalmist is asking him, please do not leave me. Is that because he's worried that the Lord will be unfaithful? No. Is that because he thinks that God might actually get tired of him and be done with him? No. It's because the psalmist understood that in our prayer lives, we would do well to pray for what God has promised to do. When God promises to do a thing, you ought to pray about that thing and ask God to do it. And this is just one example of many I could give you in the Bible. We tend to think about prayer as, I'm going to come to God and I'm going to try to talk Him into doing something different, unusual. I'm going to try to talk God into doing something He's not inclined to do. We tend to think if we could get enough people bothering God, God God, enough people knocking on the door, and a big enough prayer chain, then maybe God would do something that He otherwise wouldn't do. That's not how prayer works in the Bible. The best prayers in the Bible, you read them, search them out. There are people praying for God to do things that He's already promised to do. Moses did this, David did this, Paul did this, Jesus Himself did this. So he's praying and he's asking for God's presence. He's also asking for God's provision. Verse 122, give your servant a pledge of good. When he asks for a pledge, he's talking about economics. He's not asking for a verbal promise, but he's essentially asking for economics. He's saying, God, I need you to put a down payment down with me. He's acknowledging that he has a debt that he can't pay, and he's asking God to step in and cover his tab to pay his bill. That's the idea with this word pledge, array. Give me a pledge of good. Make some sort of payment in my life so that I know that you're with me and you're for me. We'll come back to that idea in a minute. What does he request? He also asks for God's steadfast love. His steadfast love. This is verse 124. He says, deal with your servant according to your steadfast love. We've talked about this phrase, steadfast love, in Psalm 119 already. It's the Hebrew word hesed. It's a word that talks about God's covenant love, His promise to be faithful to His people, His merciful kindness to His people, His graciousness to His people. It's what Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible calls God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. It's not a fickle, weak, iffy, tentative, conditional kind of love. But it's God's unconditional commitment to His people. God promises that to His people, and yet the psalmist again asks that God would deal with him according to His steadfast love. 
God had long since told His people that He was abounding in steadfast love for His people. He had promised them that He would be faithful in love to them. And yet the psalmist is praying for this. He's praying that God would deal with him according to his steadfast love. That verse 124, I hope you see, shapes how you read verse 121. Verse 121, I've done what's just and right. Does he think that he's perfect? No way. Because he comes down just a few verses later in verse 124, and he asks for God's merciful, gracious, kind, patient love in his life. Why would he ask for that? Because he knows that he's a sinful man. The orientation of his life is towards the Lord, but he knows that he's fallen short of God's glory, and he prays that God would show steadfast love to him. So presence and provision and steadfast love, number four, he asked for instruction. Instruction. We've seen this in Psalm 119. It's worth pointing it out again. He says, deal with your servant, verse 124, according to your steadfast love, and teach me your statutes. Verse 125, I'm your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. He's asking God to teach him. God, would you give me understanding? Would you give me wisdom? Would you give me knowledge? Now, we often ask for that when we're suffering, don't we? Often what we ask is that God would help us to understand why we're suffering. God, would you explain why this is happening to me? Would you explain why this is happening to people that I care about? Or we ask the question, God, how much longer is this going to last? How much longer? The psalmist is asking for understanding, but not of the why and the, not of the duration. He's asking for understanding of the Word. That's something to remember when you're oppressed and when you're afflicted and when you're suffering and when you're talking to the Lord. Ask Him for understanding. Not of some secret wisdom of why this is happening or how long it's going to last, but go to the Lord in those moments and say to Him, God, would you in this moment of oppression and suffering and affliction, would you give me a deeper, better more Christ-centered understanding of your word? Would you help me to know the Bible better in this experience of affliction? So, his situation, his requests, now for his convictions. Things that he's willing to plant his flag on. He's willing to take his stand on. Number one, he anticipates the judgment of God. The judgment of God. Did you hear what he said in verse 126? It's time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. He looks around at his oppressors. He sees people all around him who have no regard for God's word or God or his glory. And he says, God, these people have broken your law, and it's time for you to do something about it. If you read verse 126 and your first instinct is to recoil in horror, if your first instinct is to say, he sounds mean and grouchy and judgmental and he just wants God to go around slapping people and that disgusts you, I would invite you to step back and think about two biblical truths. Number one, the holiness of God and number two, our sinfulness. When we are put off 
by the idea that God would act and bring judgment on people who have broken His law. We have brought God down to our level and we failed to see Him as thrice holy, 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 holy. And we have lifted ourselves up far beyond where we ought to view ourselves and we've stopped recognizing that we are sinful, wicked, wretched, depraved people. And when you get those two pieces properly in place, the character of God and the depravity of human beings, the holiness of God and our sinfulness, you will understand the logic of Romans 6.3. The wages of sin is death. That's our due as sinful people standing before a holy God. We are in deserving of judgment. We are completely deserving of God's judgment in our lives. And the psalmist has this anticipation that God will act in judgment because people have broken His law. Secondly, he's convinced that he loves God's Word more than gold. Convinced that he loves God's Word more than gold. Verse 127, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Not just gold, but fine gold. Throughout Psalm 119, he says he delights in God's Word. He loves God's Word. We just sang a song written by two of our own church members. God, your word is sweeter than honey. It's more valuable than gold. He loves God's word. In your life, I promise you there will be times where you wake up to read this book. Just be honest. Not church talk, just honest talk. You wake up in the morning to read this book and you'll think to yourself, I don't want to read it. It doesn't taste very sweet right now. I'd rather have a pile of gold right now. Christmas is coming. I could use the gold. I'd rather not have this. I, I don't have a heart for it. You'll, you'll face those times in your life. But the longer you walk as a servant of the Lord, and the longer you commit yourself to reading this book, the more you will find yourself echoing the words of the psalmist saying, God, this is a sweet book to me. I love this book. I need this book. I depend on this book. I would take this book and these truths over a mountain of gold. Will you feel that way every day, every morning when the alarm clock goes off? Absolutely not. But if you walk faithfully as a servant of the Lord, will that love for God's Word grow in your life? I think it will. So he anticipates judgment. He loves God's word more than gold. Number three, he knows that God's ways are right. God's ways are right. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right, and I hate every false way. You know, in our suffering and in our affliction, we often are quick to question God. When life is really tough, it's really easy to question God to question what He's doing, His ways, to question His timing, to question His purposes, to question your circumstances, to question why your oppressors seem to be prospering when you're suffering under their affliction. And this is a rock that you need under your feet when you face oppression and suffering and affliction. You need to know that God's ways are always right. That's the outline. And we're almost done. 
But I want to end a little bit differently this morning. We've talked as we worked through this psalm about his situation and his requests and his convictions. We've tried to make life application as we went. I want you to look in this iron stanza, and I want you to look at what he says in verse 123. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. You understand the psalmist lived before Jesus. And he was looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. He was longing for it. You and I live after Jesus and we look back to His coming. And as we end, very quickly, I just want to walk through each of the points on your outline. And I want to give you a verse that connects Jesus and the good news of the gospel to every single truth that we've seen in Psalm 119 in this Ion stanza this morning. We're going to move through these quickly. You're not going to have time to uh, read all of these or write all of these ideas down, but maybe you could write the Scriptures down if you want to do that. We're just going to move through these points and see how they, they ultimately are fulfilled in Jesus. So, number one, the psalmist says, I built my life on God's Word. Not perfect. His life is built on the Word of God. When you turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4, We read that Jesus was tempted in every way like us, yet He lived a life completely without sin. He built His life on God's Word in a way that was different than the psalmist or you and me. He did it in a way that was absolutely perfect and without sin. The psalmist said that he was experiencing oppression. And you might think of the prophecy of Isaiah 53 that says the servant of the Lord would be oppressed and afflicted. That's the same word we've seen throughout Psalm 119, affliction. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was led away like a lamb to the slaughter. The psalmist says he's longing for salvation. Longing for salvation. You remember the words of Simeon, the aged man in the temple when he saw baby Jesus being presented in Jerusalem, and he held him and he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. He was a servant. He was looking with his eyes to the word of God, and he saw the salvation of the Lord come to fulfillment. The psalmist asked for God's presence. What do we read in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23? We read that Jesus is Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's God, come to be with His people. That's the presence of God with us. The psalmist asked for God's provision. He asked for a pledge or a guarantee, a payment. What do we read in Hebrews 7? We read that Jesus is the guarantor. He's the pledge of a better covenant. The psalmist asked for God's steadfast love, Romans 5.8. God showed His love for us, His faithful love, His steadfast love for His people, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The psalmist asked for God's instruction. What do we read when Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead and He walked with the disciples? We read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them and all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. The psalmist said, teach me your word. Jesus literally did that, walking the disciples through the Old Testament, showing them how it pointed to Him. The psalmist anticipated judgment. He said, your word has been broken and it's time for you to act. What do we read in Galatians 3? We read that judgment fell on Jesus Christ who was cursed for us. 
wasn't just judgment on God's enemies, but it was judgment on God's Son so that His enemies could become His children. The psalmist said he loved God's Word more than gold. Jesus, as He hung on the cross, died penniless. His final few belongings being divided up as He died, but He died with the Word of God on His lips, Psalm 22. The psalmist knew that God's ways were right. Jesus, praying in Gethsemane about the cup that He was to drink, said, Lord, if it can pass, let it pass, yet not what I will, but what You will. Your way is right. 2,000 years ago, give or take, the Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, overshadowed a virgin named Mary. This woman, Mary, who was betrothed to a man named Joseph to be married, became pregnant miraculously. She gave birth to a son who was Emmanuel, God with us. She was told by the angel to give him the name Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. This is the miracle of Christmas. It's the miracle of the incarnation. It's the eternal Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus was unique compared to any other baby ever born because He was truly God and truly man. Even today, He is truly God and truly man. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the Word of God. He delighted in God's Word every moment of His life, and He fulfilled everything in the Scriptures that needed to be fulfilled. He lived a life of sinless obedience. He died a substitutionary sacrificial death on a cross. Not for His sin, but for ours. He was cursed for our sins. He died. He was buried. Three days later, He was raised from the dead, and He ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, where, even now, today, He rules and He reigns over all the peoples and all the nations. Today, this Jesus offers the forgiveness of sins and eternal life to anyone and everyone who will repent and believe will agree with God about your sin problem and put your faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even today as Jesus promises and offers this gift of eternal life, we live under the promise that one day He will return to this earth to judge the living and the dead. And we will all be found to have fallen short of His glory. We will all be found deserving of death. But those who are found believing in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved forever. They'll have eternal life. Those who have not put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will be separated from Him forever. If you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I know there's a football game on today. I know there's a lunch down the hall in just a moment. If you've never put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, That is the most important thing that you need to do today. To repent of your sin and to believe in the Lord Jesus. If you do that, the Bible says you'll be saved. We would love to visit with you about that when the service is over. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're not coming to God saying, Look at me, I'm good, I'm perfect, I've had a great week or a great month. 
But we're coming to God saying, God, I'm a sinful person and my only hope is Jesus. That He lived for me and that He died for me and that He's offered me eternal life. We remember His body broken for our sins. We remember His blood shed for our ransom. And we give thanks. Many points in church history, the Lord's Supper was known as the Eucharist, which is a word that means thanksgiving. Because the people of God gather together and they take the bread and they drink the cup and they give thanks for what God has done to save us through His Son, Jesus. So if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus, you've put your faith in Jesus and you've been obedient to the Lord's command to be baptized, we invite you to celebrate the Lord's Supper with us this morning. I'll ask you to take the elements and uh, we'll take the bread together first. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 26. Jesus celebrating the Passover with his disciples, instituting this Last Supper, this Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26. Verse 26 says, As they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, and He gave it to the disciples, and He said, Take, eat, this is My body. Continuing in verse 27, it says, He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it. All of you, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Father, this morning we give thanks. We thank you for your word. Lord, and as your servants, we are dependent on your word. We're dependent on your word to know the truth about who you are and who we are. The truth about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, we're thankful as Christians this morning for Jesus. We're thankful for his birth, even as we begin to look Towards the Advent season, we thank you for Jesus being born, for his life of obedience, for his sacrificial death. We thank you for the offer and the promise of eternal life and the forgiveness of sins that is ours when we repent and we believe. And Father, we pray for people who are here this morning who have never done that. We pray that today they might repent of their sin and believe in Jesus for the very first time. Father, those of us who have done that, those of us who are walking as your servants, we're thankful for Jesus. We're thankful for the Lord's Supper to look back and remember what Christ has done for us. And we come empty-handed. We come receiving your grace and your mercy. We come giving you thanks for all that you've done on our behalf. You are a good God. You are a gracious God. You're worthy of our worship this morning. So before we leave, we're going to sing about who you are and all that you've done in our lives. Lord, be honored as we lift our voices and sing. We do it in Jesus' name. Amen.